Hi, this is Dr. William Balanoff, and this is Dentistry Goals. And what I'd love to talk about today is what do I do once I graduate dental school? Once, What do I do once I get out of my residency? It's a scary thing. It's a scary thought because there's like so many different options. And I want to got to go through all of the options, and I want to go through the pros and cons of each of those because there's no right one answer for any of us. And of course, I'm going to kind of reflect back on my own career and my own life but I think we also need to put it in perspective because when I graduated dental school, that was a long, long time ago. And the idea of a DSO, a dental service organization, that idea didn't even exist. It certainly didn't exist in its current form. So that wasn't even an option for me way back then. But I'm still going to use a lot of the choices that I had and a lot of the choices that you have right now. And I want to discuss kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly of each one of those. So here it is, you've just graduated dental school, you've just graduated your residency, and now you need to make money because you're in debt. And not just a little bit of debt, but like a lot of debt. <clears throat> and in fact, your debt service, meaning the amount of money you've got to pay back in principal and interest, typically is anywhere between two and $5,000 a month. That's a lot of debt. You know, that's typically a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. And I've had different residents that I've trained by the time they leave their prosthodontic residency, they'll be in debt as much as five or $600,000, like the cost of a house, you know, and that's just like overwhelming. And now we've got different residency programs out there. For example, the Georgia School of Orthodontics, you're paying $100,000 a year in tuition, plus you still need to eat and you still need to sleep someplace. So by the time you finish that three-year residency on top of dental school, on top of college, you could conceivably be in debt <clears throat> seven or $800,000, and that's scary. So what happens after this? You've got all of this debt, and this debt's not going to be forgiven, and uh, and now you got to start paying it all back, and they'll give you a couple of months of leeway, but eventually they're going to want the money. So what happens to you next? Well, you've got a bunch of choices, and some of them are really good choices, and it makes perfectly good sense, and some of the other choices are probably something that you've never thought about, but it's worth considering. So let's kind of start at the very beginning. One of the choices you have is to go into the military and become a dentist in one of the armed services, whether it's the Navy, Air Force, Army, it doesn't make any difference. You can become a dentist there and off you go. And you usually will enter, whether it's the Air Force or the Army, you're going to enter at the rank of captain. It's the Navy, you're going to enter the rank of lieutenant, the same grade, and then they're going to send you off to someplace to be a dentist. And you're thinking, well, where's that someplace? Well, this is kind of a con in some ways to join in the services. You don't know where that, where that first duty station is going to be. They're going to send you someplace, someplace in the world. It may be stateside. It may be South Korea. It may be someplace in Europe. It's going to be someplace in the world. And if you're single and you don't have any particular allegiance to like your hometown, you know, joining the service and seeing the world on somebody else's dime is an exciting, amazing thing. And like all jobs, we have bosses. So a superior officer, somebody with a higher rank than you is going to be your boss. And there's going to be requirements. They're going to want you to see so many patients per day. You're going to have to follow the, uh, the services rules, and, and that's the way it's going to be. The beautiful thing about it is you're going to get paid. 
and you can rely on that paycheck because the government would make sure that you're going to get paid before everybody else. <clears throat> and the government typically will make sure that you have a certain amount of credit towards continuing education, which means you get to advance the amount of dentistry that you know on somebody else's dime, meaning the taxpayers. You're going to be going to all these amazing conferences and you're going to learn all kinds of great things. You're going to get a certain amount of vacation off and you're going to be able to see places that typically no one else in the world sees. One of the cons to joining the service, service is when you join the service, they get to do with you what they like. So if you're at a duty station for one or two or three years and you really enjoy it and you're really made, you just find it so much fun to live in Germany, you don't want there to leave, they may very quickly decide, okay, you're going from Germany now, you're going to be going to someplace in North Dakota. And that's it. You're shipped off. Like, you don't really have a lot of say-so in the whole entire thing. And, and it happens just that fast. So that becomes kind of the pro and con. And if you decided to stick with the service and you decided to put in your 20 years, you get a very nice pension. And it's typically 75% of your base pay when you retire. So if you join the service and you're, say, 26 or 30 years old, depending on you know what special you decided to do, 20 years later, you're somewhere between 45 and 50 years old. You get out of the service. You've got a pension for the rest of your life. You've got major medical benefits for the rest of your life. And you still get to still get to enjoy private practice or something along those lines after your 20 year, 20 year career in the service. So that sounds like a pretty good deal, <clears throat> except for the fact that you're going to be traveling and you're going to be traveling typically every two to three years to a new duty station. And if you like the duty station, great. But if you don't like the boss of the new duty station, you don't like the, the major or the lieutenant colonel or the colonel commanding you or the lieutenant commander or commander or captain commanding you, then you're not going to like that duty station so much. And if you join someplace like the Navy, they may put you on an aircraft carrier and you're going to be at sea for the next nine to 10 months. And you're not going to be able to see your family. So <clears throat> for single people, I think it's an amazing opportunity to see and experience things that you can never imagine. For married people, I think it's a little bit more challenging and it's something that you realistically have to talk about. Because part of what you do in the service is not just, you know, drill and fill and yank teeth, is you have to go to places that are dangerous. You know, you have to go to combat areas and you need to be able to be trained in order to help um, enlisted people and, and other officers that may have been injured because of war or some type of armed conflict. So that's like a whole other thing to kind of think about. Now, they certainly do an amazing job of training you and the benefits that you get with respect to retirement and major medical and vacation and CE are certainly very enticing, but make sure that you weigh the pro and the con of what that means. So that's my kind of take on the service. I love the idea. I think it's an amazing thing for a particular demographic, typically um, those that are single without a family, I think it's an amazing opportunity. <clears throat> so now you've graduated dental school, your residency, what are some of the other options? Academia, you could become a professor at a university, someplace in the United States or someplace in the world, and you can teach dentistry to other young adults wanting to become dentists. So what are the pros and cons of that? Well, the pay is not particularly good. In fact, the pay is 
on the lower side of good, even if you're a department chair. And you really don't start making any real money until you become a dean. And at most private universities, you can make more money in private practice than you can as the dean of the university. So why do people do it? Well, the pace is a lot different. You know, you still have to teach class and you still have to help on the clinic floor, but the pace is not like private practice. And for some dentists out there, private practice is not really their thing. The pressure is just too much for them. They just don't like it. They feel like they're being rushed and they don't like the idea of trying to do substandard dentistry. So now private practice becomes a really, really good, I'm sorry, academia becomes a really, really good option for them. They can go to a university, they can teach a class, it's at a lot slower pace, and there's not the pressure of having to pay the bills, collect the money, find patients, all the kinds of things to do with it. And one of the nice advantages of the university is you actually have what they call faculty practice. So you can still practice seeing patients in a private practice setting as part of the faculty practice, make money there to supplement your income because the amount of money you're making as a salaried professor at a university is tough. And remember, there's a hierarchy at the university too. You go from you know, instructor to assistant professor to associate professor to professor, and that process takes many, many years, and you have to publish in order to get these academic achievements and these academic advancements. So if you're not a researcher, that's probably not such a good idea for you. But if you like doing research at a university with a slower pace, then it makes a lot of good sense. So why don't more people do this? Well, if you want to do research, you have to find the funding. Somebody's got to pay for the research. That means you've got to write grant proposals in order for you to do the research in order for you to achieve a higher academic rank. So you can start to see where that expression publish or perish starts to come in. And it becomes a tough thing. And the other thing I found out universities is a lot of the people who were my superiors and I taught at a university, some of them were amazing. And I, I learned so much for some of my bosses and some of them not so much. It was tough going for a guy like me who was very entrepreneurial, who was very go-getter, who wanted to make things really, really good. And I found out that a lot of people at the university don't want anything to change. They want it to stay exactly the same day in and day out. And it got to be really frustrating for me. So I was trying to do all these great things. And what, what I learned is there was a lot of people at the university who didn't want anything to change. And that became a difficult thing for me. With all of that said, is a university setting a great place to be? It certainly is at the right university in the right culture. I mean, what you get to do, the life that you get to impact, the dentist that you get to train, you know, learning all the cutting edge stuff that all of these vendors want you to teach at the university, it's fantastic. <clears throat> if you're willing to take less money as a professional, that's an amazing opportunity. There are some people who can afford to take less money as a professional because their student loans are not as great as other people. So if you're able to take less money and give back to the profession, then doing something like a university is a great idea. But remember, you need to be able to pay back those student loans. So think about how much money you're getting paid and whether or not there's some type of bonus incentive for the university to help pay back some of those student loans. Sometimes the services, like we just mentioned, will allow you to enlist. 
and become an officer and they'll help pay back some of those student loans. So there's all different kinds of incentive programs, which leads me to the third thing, which is public health service, working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, working for other public health services as a dentist. They're so desperate to have young professionals join the ranks that the amount of debt service programs that they have for the student loans that you have are probably too many to count. So look into that and decide, I think I wanna be a, a dentist <clears throat> on an Indian reservation in the Southwest. It's an amazing opportunity and the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Public Health Service will allow you to kind of navigate those options. You're practicing dentistry, the patients that you are taking care of, the dentistry is being paid for by either the state or the United States or the reservation and you're able to infect, affect a lot of those patients' lives by giving them world-class dentistry. In return, you become a very honored and well-respected person in that community. They truly look to you as that person. And that's like an amazing, amazing thing. It's just, it just makes you feel good about being a dentist. And another incentive they're gonna give you is they're gonna take care of some of the debt that you have besides paying you a very competitive salary to do the dentistry in one of their locations. So please look into that. And it's certainly an option for the first maybe five years of your professional career to where you can kind of build up your speed, feel confident about who you are as a dentist, help an underserved population of the United States, truly give back to your field of dentistry and also reduce the amount of debt that you have going forward. And that's how I look at the public health service. Another amazing option. What are some of the other options we have? Well, we have generally three left and one is gonna be industry. And you're like, industry? Yeah, working for a 3M, working for a dent supply, working for a Nobel BioCare, working for their other implant companies, different dental suppliers, different dental equipment manufacturers. That is a real job for a dentist to work with these large companies and help them get their product to market. So what are some of the opportunities there? Well, some of the opportunities have to do with research, product development, becoming a company spokesperson. It's limitless in the way that you're able to interact with companies and, and, and learn different ways that you can help private industry get their products and services to market. So many dentists I know didn't even realize that was an option. So I'm gonna explain one of the things that I did. So there was a, a group of investors and they wanted to start to invest their money into medical and dental supplies and equipment companies. The thing is that they didn't know necessarily what to invest in. They knew that dentistry was a great place to be. They knew the return on investment was impressive. They just didn't know what to do or where to put their money. So they hire somebody like me to be their chief science consultant. Who knew that was even a job? And what I would do is they would send me the names of companies and I would look at the service, the product or the technology that the company was trying to sell. And I would make recommendations based upon my experience as a dentist and whether or not I thought it had some type of impact within practice, whether it was private practice, DSO practice, military, public health, it didn't make any difference because the technology services and equipment are pretty much all the same. They're going to help dentists do their job better. So what I would do is I would help this company find other companies 
literally throughout the world to invest in. So what did my job really entail? I joked around that I always had one vote in the process, but my vote was very early on. And if I found a company or they found a company and I liked it and I voted yes, that this particular investment company would continue to go through the vetting process, look through the financials, the manufacturing process, their distribution, what kind of market share they had. The list just goes on and on. And all of these uh, MBA type people are really, really good at that. And if I thought for some reason that the technology, the service, the product, the equipment wasn't something that I thought would have an impact in the marketplace, I would vote no. And me voting no would save the company tens of thousands of dollars of due diligence of what they should or they shouldn't invest in. And it seems kind of silly because you're thinking, really, that's like really a job? I didn't even know that was like a thing. It is very, very much a thing. Yeah. It is very, very much a thing. And these companies need dentists with a certain amount of business acumen and a certain amount of understanding of technology and trends future for dentistry. And they will pay you very handsomely for that. And they will either pay you as a 1099 employee, meaning you get to set your own hours, but you get to pay your own taxes. And sometimes they'll hire you as an employee, whatever the option is. Those jobs are out there and there's more and more jobs out there than there used to be 10, 15, 20 years ago. So many more investment companies are very much interested in dentistry and they need your help to know where to put their money. And when I say their money, we're not talking about $1,000 or $100,000. We're talking about investments of a million dollars, $10 million, $50 million, $100 million. That's the kind of money that they're talking about. So they're looking for smart, energetic, forward-thinking dentists to help recommendations um, where they should be investing their money. Look into it. I've done it and I continue to do it. It's so much fun and you feel so empowered and you get to see things that are gonna happen in dentistry, but maybe not for another three to five years. And being able to look behind the curtain, wow. It is just amazing when you hop on that plane and you fly to Australia or you fly to Japan or you fly to Europe and you're seeing things and you're like, oh my gosh. And for like really smart investment companies, what they'll do when they realize that dentistry is kind of like the, uh, you know, the abandoned stepchild sometimes of medicine and we are. So now sometimes really forward thinking companies will send you to different medical conventions to see what medicine has come up, up with to see if there's any applications for dentistry. And they're gonna send you to veterinarian conventions to see if there's any applications to dentistry because there's a lot of companies out there that, um, that produce and invent this amazing technology and they go straight to medicine because medicine is like a lot of money there. But medicine's also heavily regulated by the government as to what they pay. And dentistry is not that at all. Once they realize that there's a dental component to their business, they love that. And your job is to go to medical conventions. So what are my two favorites? Well, the International Dental Show, which is held in Cologne, Germany, every two years is an absolute must. Um, you think about like your typical dental convention in the United States, usually like one or, you know, one convention center, whether it's a Chicago midwinter or New York, Boston, Anaheim, it doesn't make any difference. It's one convention center. 
when you go to Cologne, we're talking about maybe 12 to 14 convention centers. Yeah, 12 to 14 buildings will house technology, equipment, and supplies literally from all over the world. You're like, oh my God, it will take you days to go through this entire thing. There's thousands of thousands of vendors, vendors and countless lectures. You absolutely got to see it. The other thing that I recommend is to go to Medica, which is the international medical show, which is held in Dusseldorf, Germany. And that's held every year, typically in November. And they will have typically 18 convention centers filled with products, supplies, technology. I mean, it's amazing all the stuff that they come up with. And I've gone to that particular convention a number of times and I've found technology which has real world applications to dentistry. And the, and the company that paid for me to go there, this investment company, I've given them plenty of recommendations of products and services they can launch in the United States and get a market share before anybody else even realizes it's possible. It is all out there. So please take advantage of that. The last two things I want to talk about going about the pros and cons is, uh, is be, becoming a private practice owner versus a DSO, a dental service organization. So why do one over another? Well, let's kind of start with private practice because I was in private practice for 27 years. Absolutely loved it. Starved the first couple of years. And then as time went on, loved being in private practice. And I thought it was like the greatest thing in the world. And, and I would recommend it to everyone, provided you like working harder than you've ever worked in your entire life, have more responsibility on your shoulders than you could have ever imagined, and wake up one day realizing that the easiest part about being a private practice owner was the moment that it's you against the tooth, because you're trained for all of that. And the moment you lift your head from that person's mouth is when it becomes really difficult to be a private practice owner. So you see all of these negative things about private practice, but what makes private practice so good? Well, you're the boss. You get to decide on what materials you want to use. You get to decide on what hours you get to work. You get to decide on when you get to take a vacation. You get to decide on who you want to hire and fire. And in fact, being a private practice owner, you get to decide everything, everything as far as your small little business. And you make an enormous amount of money doing it. So that's like really exciting. But the opposite side to getting to decide everything is you get to decide on what equipment you want to buy, what kind of loan you're going to take out to afford this equipment. You got to be able to figure out your lease for the building that you're going to be renting. You've got to be able to figure out payroll. You need to understand a profit and loss, what a balance sheet means. You need to be able to manage your cash. You need to make decisions about marketing and advertising. You've got all of these things that are just cascading in on you and it becomes really overwhelming sometimes. And after 27 years of private practice, when I eventually sold my private practice to Clear Choice, it was as if this is enormous, enormous weight was lifted off of me. Would I do it all over again? Hell yeah in a second. Would I sell my practice to a DSO? Hell yeah in a second. I loved every single part of it. 
the problem that we have now with private practice is you get out of dentistry, you, know, you get out of dental school, your residency, you're in debt. Like we talked about hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what do you do? Like, where do you get the money from? Well, you can borrow the money to, you know, to buy a private practice. And I would recommend buying an existing private practice and doing incredible amounts of due diligence. And, and that'll be a subject for another podcast, which is the due diligence of buying a business. Cause that's like a, easily a half an hour discussion. So you want to hire professionals to help you buy this dental practice, a great lawyer, a great dental supplier, who's going to be able to vet the equipment to make sure that it's in good mechanical shape. Um, <clears throat> make sure you understand the terms of the loan, what kind of power you have over the cash in your bank as you take this loan out and what obligations does the bank have for you? What does it look like if you default on this loan for whatever reason, because things happen. And of course, what the upside is, how much money should you expect to make after debt service working a 32 or a 40 hour a week? These are all the things that you need to kind of know. And you need to know also, you know, does the staff that's working for the previous owner, are they going to be loyal to you? And do they, do they like where they work? These are all like legitimate, real questions. So I love private practice. And I also hated private practice, which is completely normal. It's like everything else in life. There's a yin and a yang to it. So what about the DSO world? Well, when I sell my private practice to Clear Choice, I became doctor number 10 in Clear Choice in 2010. So a long, long time ago. I was very early on with Clear Choice. I loved it. I had somebody else doing payroll. I had somebody else managing the cash. I had somebody else worrying about inventory, if the equipment broke, if the internet connection was lost, the utilities. Clear Choice paid for everything and took care of all the things that just drove me crazy, including the marketing and advertising. And the moment that I signed the contract with Clear Choice, Clear Choice said, okay, Dr. Balanoff, you need to work four 10-hour days per week, 16 days a month. And that's the trade-off. So now I no longer had the ability to decide when I was going to take off. If I wanted to leave the office early, can I cancel my four o'clock patient and beat it out of there before the traffic? It's like, no, you're an employee. You're working four 10-hour days. That's exactly what you're doing. Four 10-hour days, 16 days a month. For that, they took care of all the other aggravation. So at that point in my career, it was like a really, really good thing. And if you decided to join a DSO early on in your career as a dentist, because you're burdened with so much student loan debt that it just feels crushing to you, and you have no choice but to work for a DSO, um, I get it. Because when I first started my private practice, it's not like I had enough to keep me busy four or five days a week. I had to be an associate in a couple of other dental practices. I had to be an associate in South Miami and Hialeah, and I would work there one and a half days per week. I'd work a day during the week and then a half a day on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I also worked as the dentist in the Broward County Jail. I did whatever I needed to do to make enough money to pay off the loans that I had from dental school. And as my private practice matured, I started to pull back from, other, from some of those other commitments that I had with the DSO. So what are some of the downsides to the DSO? Well, we already talked about one of them, which is they're setting your hours. They're going to tell you, generally speaking, how many patients they want you to see per day. Now, a DSO is very careful to make sure that they don't tell you, you know, what type of dentistry to practice, but they also will start to look at like how long it takes you to do a crown prep. 
And if it's a really smart DSO, and they see that it's taking you an hour and a half to do a crown prep impression, temp, and all that other kind of stuff, that's probably too long. And a smart DSO is going to spend money to train you to make you faster and better. A poorly run DSO is going to be critical of this behavior, and they're going to just kind of be mean to you and tell you to pick up your pace. But you, you really don't know what else to do because, you know, you're still kind of young at it. So when you start looking at DSOs and opportunities, look at what type of continued education that they have in order to make you a better dentist. And the DSOs that are really smart will invest in you and make you a better dentist because they realize <clears throat> they're going to make more money and profit by you being a better dentist. And you can ask these questions. Like when you go in for the interview, ask them, it's like, what are you going to do to make me a better dentist? Explain your continued education opportunities. The other thing that DSOs do is they, and they do this really well, the, the training above and beyond the dental aspects of this is far and above what you would probably get in private practice. Really well-run DSOs are going to want to teach you business things. They, they're going to want to prep you to become part of the fabric of that dental service organization. So they're going to start to teach you business things along the way that are going to enhance your professional career. But remember, you're still an employee. And if for some reason somebody doesn't like you, they can fire you pretty much for any reason. And you say, well, I'm going to be a good dentist. Why would they fire me? Well, typically there's clauses in the contract that are going to say they can give you 30, 60, or 90 days notice and you're out. So when I say fire you, the idea they're going to fire you for cause and kick you out of the DSO the same day that typically doesn't happen unless you've done something really bad to hurt somebody. Then they're going to fire you for cause. But if for some reason they don't like you or somebody doesn't like you within the organization for whatever reason, and it's a crazy world sometimes, they will find a way to get rid of you or make your life so miserable that you're going to want to quit. So how do they do that? Well, all of a sudden you're getting all the Saturday hours. All of a sudden you're getting all the evening hours. You're getting all the bad days. You're working the Friday after Thanksgiving. You're working the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And contractually, you have to do it. So they can do what they want to do to get rid of you. In private practice, you have none of that. You're the boss. In fact, you get to do all the firing and hiring. When you're working for a dental service organization, they, they own that opportunity to get rid of you. And when you do get fired, it hurts. It hurts so much because you feel like you've done something wrong. And it takes a lot to kind of get past that. And it's going to happen to all of us. It's, it's even happened to me. The idea that, you know, you get along with everybody, it's just not true. When it happens, you're going to feel very desolate, like you somehow failed. And remember, it probably has nothing to do with you as a person or even for you as a dentist. It's a lot of times they hire somebody that they can pay less to. So now they're paying somebody $10,000 a month less. And if the company could save $120,000 per year by not keeping you employed, they will do that. So you can start to see this balance between DSOs and private practice. There's so many good and so many bad. I think it kind of depends on where you are in your career. If I had my wish list, and this is generally how I think about it. If you're able to work for a DSO early in your career, and have that DSO help you start to pay off some of your debt service. And simultaneous to that, open up your own private practice, 
and I'm going to make up some dates. So you're working three or four days a week for the DSO. And in the beginning, you're only working one or two days for yourself. And as time goes on, the ratio of four days for the DSO and two days for yourself starts to change to where now you're working two days for the DSO and four days to yourself for yourself. And then it changes one more time to working a day for the DSO and five days for yourself to the point where you eventually matriculate out of working for the DSO and you're all on your own. And if that transition takes you five to 10 years, it's an amazing opportunity because with the DSO, you're pretty much guaranteed the income. You're getting paid to be there to take care of their patients as you start to grow your private practice. And that to me is a beautiful transition. And then later on in life, you own this beautiful, amazing dental practice and you're gonna have two choices. You can sell it to another proprietor who wants to be on his own and you can work for that new dentist or you can sell it to a DSO. So you can start to see that there's so many opportunities out there. You just have to be smart about where you are in your career and what you want out of your career and truly look into the mirror and say to yourself, am I the kind of dentist that can run a private practice? And if you're not, that's okay. Not everybody's meant to run a private practice. It's okay if you don't want to go into private practice. It's okay if you want to just become an academic dentist or work for the public health service or join the armed services or work in private industry for a private equity firm or work in a manufacturing equipment software kind of company. All of those choices are good. Just enjoy dentistry as much as I've enjoyed it because it is spectacular. There's so many other options out there than just being tied to a chair. But if you like being tied to the chair, and I loved it for 27 years, I thought it was the greatest job in the world. That's good. Just keep your eyes open because at some point you're gonna decide, okay, I've done enough. I love that one scene in Forrest Gump, the guy's jogging along, you know, Tom Hanks, he's jogging, 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 jogging. And all of a sudden he's on this desolate road and there's, you know, probably about 50 to 75 people behind him. And you can see the Rocky Mountains behind him. I think it's the Rocky Mountains. And Forrest Gump says, it's time to go home. And after 27 years of private practice, when I decided to sell to Clear Choice, that was the feeling I had. Everything that I wanted to accomplish as a business person, I accomplished in my 27 years of private practice. And then I went, went off to Clear Choice. And I did Clear Choice for three years. And after I did three Clear Choice for three years, I decided, you know, it's time for me to start my own business, my own entrepreneurial business. And I started Smile Perfected. And simultaneous to doing Smile Perfected, I had the invitation to do other things. I became president and chief clinic officer for a large orthodontic group in Georgia. And after I did that for a couple of years, I became chief clinical officer for another large dental implant company. All of these things are available to you in dentistry. So when you think about where you are as a young dentist, you've got all of these loans. Be smart. Look at all the options. Realize that there's certain organizations that are so desperate for dentists. They're going to help you with debt service. Just make sure you know what's available to you. I can ramble on about this a lot, but a lot of times the questions are very personal to your situation. And I truly, truly encourage you to drop me an email, wbalanoff at smileperfected.com, W-B-A-L-A-N-O-F-F at smileperfected.com. Email me your question about your own particular situation, your personal situation. I'll give you my thoughts on it. I'll try to be a connector 
and tell you where else you can go to probably get the job that you want or the opportunity you want because dentistry is a small world. Please reach out. We have to help each other. That's the brethren of dentistry. We have to help each other. Again, this is Dentistry Goals. I'm Dr. William Balanoff. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you later.